0: At MasterCard, we believe that women-owned small businesses are uniquely inspiring. They're pillars of the community and have a measurable impact on the people within them. It's their secret sauce. We are deeply committed to helping address the daily challenges of all Canadian small businesses by putting our technology, cybersecurity solutions, digital resources, and partnerships to work for you every day. Discover them today at mastercard.ca forward slash small business. MasterCard. Visit us at scotiabank.com smallbusiness.
1: The last three years have been tough on Canadian entrepreneurs. That's why we are so excited to announce the 2023 Startup Canada Tour, a five-stop national opportunity to connect entrepreneurs across Canada. Join us for keynotes, panels, and practical workshops. An exhibitor zone featuring Canada's support organisations, speed mentoring in our Ask the Expert Lounge, and an opportunity to compete in on site pop up pitches. We will be in Whitehorse on April 25th, Halifax on May 2nd, Vancouver on May 11th, Calgary on September 28th, and stay tuned for details on our final stop in Ontario. Learn more and get tickets now for the closest stop near you at startupcanadatour.ca. Welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. February is Black History Month, and we believe it's important to honor, celebrate, and pass the mic to black entrepreneurs and the support organizations that help empower them. Join us as we share the contributions and accomplishments of black entrepreneurs and learn about their lived experience as founders across Canada. Stay tuned all month and look for a recap of these stories and a complete list of resources at the end of February on the Startup Canada blog. Entrepreneurs from coast to coast to coast, welcome to the Startup Canada podcast. On the show today, we're excited to speak with Liz Mock, founder of Mushu Ice Cream, a small batch ice cream shop in the Centertown neighborhood of Ottawa. Liz started selling her eclectic flavors of ice cream at local farmers markets in 2015. Just one year later, she opened her brick and mortar location. The company's offerings include ice cream flavors inspired by local seasonal produce and by East Asian ingredients. Mushu is well known for its allergen conscious menu, which includes gluten-free waffle cones and several vegan varieties of ice cream. Drawing from Liz's design education, she has an affinity for making bold decisions and takes a fail forward approach to developing her business. In addition, Mushu believes in investing in its team and it's a certified living wage employer. It's a fascinating journey and I'm eager to hear more about it. Liz, welcome to the show.
0: Hi Rick. thanks for having me.
1: Delighted to have you. I'm just sorry we can't share some ice cream together while we're we're, we're talking. <laughs> uh, before we get into your story and all these amazing flavors, what's the top piece of advice that you hope entrepreneurs will take away from today's conversation?
0: I'm not much for giving advice without context, so it's more I think more of um maybe something that they could take away from the things that um, they might hear about my story, which is not being afraid to make some mistakes and make some big moves um, and, f- and learning how to fail and fail in a productive way.
1: All right, fail in a productive way, love it. Okay, so, so Mushu is a, is, is a well-loved spot in Ottawa, a perfect pit stop while walking along Bank Street on a hot summer's day, maybe even a, one in winter or spring. How did this all start before even the farmer's markets? Let's go back to the very beginning.
0: Um, So, I was in design school, and it's a very intense program, and um, I know one of the ways that I really like to relieve stress was through food. (laughs) Don't we all? And uh, one of the really great things about ice cream, and I think cooking in general, is that if you have an idea, you can really take it from... You know, an ideation to testing to execution, all in one night. Um, it's really satisfying to be able to go through the entire creative process, just in, in a very short period of time. And so, I get, became really addicted to that. And um, anytime I had an idea for an ice cream, it was so cathartic to be able to think of an idea, make test a few batches and then be able to share this delicious ice cream with my friends and, and talk about, you know, the whole process of how I was able to put it together.
1: Uh, and were you doing this just for your, because you wanted to, 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 to taste that flavor of ice cream or were you actually thinking about going commercial at that Oh, point? definitely
0: not commercial at that point. It was really just a way for me to um, flex my kind of creative energy without it being you know, of being part of that process of school and being evaluated or or trying to meet, you know, in a standard that was set outside of like my own personal um, exploration. So so that was really nice for me.
1: Right. And you talked about ideation and testing and that sounds like design thinking. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, (laughs) so, um, you know, possibly a lot of entrepreneurs aren't familiar with design thinking and I'm not you know an expert on it myself but i know it's 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 a and for for anyone who thinks that design is just sort of an out of touch you know let's let's do some finger painting let's make some art i mean design thinking is a, is, a, is a is a i guess ill-defined but very precise process for getting to good outcomes that involves iteration and feedback and empathy and so many uh different steps and perspectives along the way? Mm-hmm.
0: I think that like from coming from a design background, that's the biggest takeaway that I've uh, been able to implement inside of our business. I think like our branding is quite strong and, you know, the visual appeal of our product obviously comes from a, you know, a strong sense of aesthetic that cu- that was cultivated through design school. But the thing that has had the most positive impact um, organizationally would be bringing design thinking into how you know, we develop products, how we develop um, programs for our team, um, how we develop processes and even the user experience or the customer experience at the shop.
1: And what do you see as the key benefit of this formalized process of design thinking? Do you think it helps you get to outcomes faster or get to better outcomes or what?
0: I think both. I think like it's I think going back to, you know, that first question that you had about failing productively, you know, it's it's about learning how to first develop or first come up with ideas and not being afraid to throw ideas onto the wall and then be able to test and execute them with very low risk or to minimize the risk. Um, and I think sometimes it can be really daunting to implement bold and or new ideas that go against the grain, but there are ways to try them and test them without like putting everything on the line. And I think that's what design thinking is all about is understanding that failing is part of the process, um, and learning from, you know, things that worked and didn't work will, you know, be able, help you get to a better and more thorough outcome or a, a solution that hits more, more parts of the problem than, you know, just coming up with a single idea and thro- either throwing it all in, like throwing all of your resources into it, or um, just not doing anything at all.
1: Right. We'll get to the ice cream <laughs> in a minute, I promise. Um, but I'm just wondering, do you think um, design makes a pretty good background for, for an entrepreneur?
0: I think so. I think um, beyond just like basic entrepreneurship skills that we are learning in design school, um, there's also the idea of, um, being comfortable with criticism. (laughs) So credit, you know, like when you're, you're an entrepreneur, criticism can come in a lot of different ways. It can sound harsh. It can sometimes sound very kind. It can be, you know, people who are afraid of giving feedback and you have to really read into what they're trying to say. Um, and then also, you know, dealing with that personal uh, tension that comes with admitting that like the, whatever that you've come up with is not the ideal. I think our product has gotten a lot of, you know, praise and so I would say that the the critic like the um, criticism or the I would say feedback is mostly about like operations and how we could do better either in customer service or how um we can make our employees experiences at work more or just better. Um so I think that's the first thing that I get from the design background is is being very open to feedback very very comfortable with it and then having a quick turnaround between you know receiving that feedback sitting with it and then coming with some ideas on how we can address those things and those first ideas don't have to be perfect and we don't have to hold on to them until they are perfect if that makes sense
1: right and just one more question about this. Feedback is a really valuable, um, asset in any company or any project that we do, but you know, no one wants to get negative feedback. So what is, is there any mechanism in, 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 uh, design thinking or, or that you've figured out to help make it easier to receive negative feedback when someone's being critical, um, you know, for some people it's enough to shut them down. What do you do to turn that negative energy into something positive and valuable?
0: Mm -hmm. I think that, I don't know if this is part of design thinking. I think it's more of a personal philosophy and it's something that we are very, we feel strongly about sharing with our team is that, in order to handle negative feedback, you really have to have a strong sense of self. You have to be really, you have to know your convictions and know your purpose because not every piece of feedback is helpful. Um, And then you kind of have to like take that feedback and really consider it. And I think it's okay to like sit with those negative feelings. Like I still take feedback personally. I'm, I'm just much more, I'm just much more capable or like quick with overcoming that personal discomfort. And then I hold it against, you know, what I know to be my mission or my purpose or things that I, I value. And I hold that feedback against, you know, who I want to be. And, and I figure out whether that serves me or if it doesn't serve me, or if it, it, it is going to help me get to my goal or not. I think like, I think a really easy example would be, and like a very low stakes example, would be that some sometimes people say that our ice cream isn't sweet enough, or it's not uh, rich enough, and I, and that's a very fair, uh, feed, that's very fair feedback, but we know that you know we're we're making our ice cream to a taste that doesn't prefer super sweet things, and uh, we have a lot of positive feedback about our ice cream being not too sweet, and so we can't really take every single piece of feedback and commit to doing something about it. We just have to be open to it but also be very aware of what our intention is and to make sure that that feedback serves that.
1: Right. A strong sense of self, as you you mentioned earlier, a sense of who you are helps you when you say, you know, we're not really about the super sweet ice mm-hmm. cream. There's lots of that. <laughs> There's lots of that everywhere else. Right. So Tell me about the first flavors that you concocted and and what was the aha moment that led you to think, hey, I can make some money off of
0: this. (laughs) I wish there was a moment where I thought I could make money off of this, but it was really an escalation of, I just want to make really cool ice cream. (laughs) And I wanted someone to pay me to do that. And the only one who would pay me to do that was me. So, (laughs) well, yeah, the first ice creams that we made were just um, flavors that I might have missed from home. Or really just like, I wonder what that would taste like as ice cream.
1: Sorry, so what was home and what kind of flavors were you missing?
0: Um, so for flavors from home, um, so in, so I'm from Hong Kong and I grew up in Vancouver, which is a very uh, big, large um, Hong Kong community. And one of the things that we drink all the time is Hong Kong milk tea. So it's a very, very strongly steeped black and red tea blend. And um, it, it's also... Uh, drank with condensed sorry not condensed but evaporated milk Um, so the richness of the evaporated milk really match up to like the tannins and the strength of the black tea Um, and I really really missed that and so that was definitely one of the first flavors we tried to make I think early 2015 um, like or early 2010s I would say the like I don't think matcha ice cream was even popular in Ottawa yet or people hadn't really There was no matcha ice cream, I would say, other than like the store bought stuff that you could get, um, which was, which was not my favorite. (laughs) And uh, so I I would make that as well. And then for flavors that I was, I just wanted to see what it would be like. Um, One of the very first ice creams, and if not the first ice cream I ever made was actually a London Fog ice cream. So that's Earl Grey tea with vanilla. Get out. London
1: Fog. That's beautiful.
0: (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> that's uh it's a, it's a latte, the coffee shop latte drink that was really popular at the time, but I had never seen it in ice cream. And I think it's more popular now. I've seen it a couple places. Um, and so that was one of the first ones that we made. And we still make that uh, to this day, not to scoop, but just in pints, just because I'm so attached to the flavor itself. And then uh, we also made a flavor that was made with fermented tofu. So that was definitely one of my wackier ideas. We did like a spicy caramel with a um, kind of like, I would say it's the Chinese version of cheese. It's um, it's like tofu bricks that are compressed and then fermented, and they have this really great salty, um, rich umami, creamy texture to it. And uh, the people who were I had convinced to try it did really like it, but it is hard, I think, to convince people to try fermented tofu ice cream. That's not something we carry on the regular, but it is definitely one of the flavors that set me on the path of being fearless with the types of ingredients that we could use.
1: Right. And so tell me about the farmer's markets. How did you actually begin going into business?
0: I've always had a strong sense of, um, wanting to incorporate sustainability into our, into whatever I did at that time. It wasn't a business yet, but whatever I was doing, I I knew that, um, Sustainability had, to be, sustainability had to be a part of it. I remember being a kid and being a total nerd about splitting up our recycling based on the numbers. <laughs> and I mean, And then so when we when I first started thinking, okay, I, I wanted to try this for summer, um, just want to do something fun. The farmers' market definitely came to mind because I had already been shopping at the Lansdowne farmers market every single weekend. Um, and I saw, I really liked the vibe. I talked to the farmers and um, it, it just felt like the right place to start. And so I applied and I actually didn't realize how competitive it could, it, it was to get into the farmer's market. You have to um, do an application, do a write-up, then do kind of like an interview with samples on, you know, why you deserve to be in the market. Um, and I think that year only two new vendors were accepted and and we were one mm-hmm. of them. So it was a really big accomplishment that I didn't expect to have required, you know, that level um, of kind of effort. But I'm really glad it does. Like it's really, it was really eye-opening to see how stringent it can be, the standards that are set for um the Lansdowne farmers market. Uh so, so that's where we were. And um, I think when I first started, I didn't have, while sustainability was really important, I I didn't really have a strong sense of like how i was going to incorporate local produce into my product line i was just really focused on the idea of nostalgia and like bringing east asian flavors into the mix but you know like on far- in farmers market days there's you know you have busy days you have slow days and that gives you an opportunity to talk to a lot of you know the, the farmers that are in the area and learn about their farming practices and learn about the produce and Mostly try really, really delicious local produce, um, and the funny thing is, I I did remember when I briefly moved back to Hong Kong that one of the things I really missed was good berries. Like I think that in Canada we can take certain produce for granted, and then you know we we put tropical fruits on this pedestal, and then you know when you have to move to another place, you're like, oh man, I just really miss vine ripened strawberries. <laughs> And I've just been eating mangoes for days and this is great, but I just really want a good <laughs> strawberry right now. So I think by building those relationships and learning more about them, I just became more um, adamant about also incorporating a, like a farm to table aspect to our business as well. And I think that that kind of goes against certain business Rules, not rules, but I would say like recommendations, which is to be very focused on uh, your product line and to be very clear about what your brand is all about. And that's definitely one of the places where I've kind of broken that rule. Where you know, anytime ask people ask me what kind of ice cream you make, I can't give a straight answer because of all these different influences that I allow to come <laughs> into our into our kitchen.
1: Interesting. We'll, we'll come back to that. because That's a really interesting conundrum about when values and process and everything gets in the way of mm-hmm. just giving the customers what they think they want. Interesting. Um, let's just talk about the, the, this thing, but something happened at the farmer's market that made you think, hey, this this, this could work. So tell us, was it uh, like a, a summer that paid off really well that made you think, hey, I think a, a year round store could work or was there one day when suddenly you sold more than you could ever possibly imagine or what, what was the moment?
0: Um, there wasn't really a single moment. It wasn't actually the farmer's market that did this. So I'll, I'll tell just like a little funny story where we would have, um, a certain me and my, actually my partner really helped me at the farmer's market. I should mention him too. Um, so he would come with me every single weekend and we would do this together and he has a full-time job. So I was, I was very lucky to have a supportive partner that could provide, let's be real free labor so that I could (laughs) make this dream come true. Uh, (laughs) Well, let's mention
1: him. Let's make sure. So thank you, Chris.
0: Um, (laughs) He's actually out running an errand right now for Mushu. So (laughs) thank you, double. Um, So we would do this thing where if we hit a certain sales number, we would get cheese and we would call it victory cheese. And um, we never (laughs) got in, like, there was never a point where we ever, like, you know, had had sales that would, like, blow our minds and we would even get two victory cheeses. But it was actually out of necessity. So for folks that are in Ontario or are probably other provinces, they may know that if you want to start a food business, no matter how small, you're technically not allowed, you're like you're legally not allowed to sell food out of your own home. Um, and so at the time I was renting a commercial kitchen and it was from another food business and they were actually deciding to close up. And so we had a choice. Um, it was whether we were going to also you know stop because we didn't have access to this kitchen anymore were we going to um take over the lease from them but it was a bit too expensive and then or were we going to try to find somebody else whose kitchen they'd be let us they would let us use our kitchen on these off hours that was you know that had the things that we needed um and then you know the the last option was like we could open our own place and um Uh. yeah there was no real like big like amazing this is the day you know it was really just evaluating all of our choices you know at the dinner table and thinking like we we don't know if it's gonna work but um is it worth a try and is it yeah is it like what is what is the worst case scenario and um and I I use that a lot I use worst case scenario a lot to help me make decisions on whether I want to make a really big jump or really big move. And I think that's why it's harder for, as you grow to make bolder and bolder decisions because you have more to lose. But I think at that moment in time, it was Mm -hmm. like, I was really young. I was only 25. Um, We had no assets. Like we didn't have, you know, a house to lose. We didn't have a family we would need to feed. So it was very easy for me to take a really bold risk and say, well, the worst case scenario is that, you know, I will all, you know, we, we go bankrupt and we have to start from scratch. But starting from scratch in your mid 20s doesn't seem as, you know, so bad.
1: Right. Yeah. Not
0: much <laughs> and I think that's what really convinced me. Like, obviously, there was like a biased part of me that was like, I just want to do this thing. But, you know, when you have to consider, am I just being indulgent? Um, and what is the realistic consequences of these decisions? I realized the consequences were not as bad severe as you know being able to say that i did this i think i felt like the the regret that i would have for not trying would be stronger i would feel more Mm -hmm. sad and devastated than if i went bankrupt for trying something that was really interesting to me at the time
1: is it fun to be in the ice cream business
0: yeah i think so (laughs) (laughs)
1: <laughs> it's really, it, I mean, it sounds like so much fun when people think of ice cream, they think of birthdays, they think of dessert, they think of those hot summer days and how perfect yeah. it is. Um, does it feel like that way every day? Um,
0: I, you know, what I'm not sure, okay. it, it comes with a lot of unique, um, a lot of unique issues because you know it's a seasonal business, so we there, I, I think that's one of the first things we had ended up tackling was realizing that if we wanted to have a strong team. We needed to provide meaningful employment and being seasonal is particularly difficult Um, because people need Mm -hmm. stable year-round employment um, in order for them to budget in order for them to do normal things. Um, So you know, that, that's an issue, Um, keeping the product frozen. um, That's, that's an issue too. Like if you, if the ice cream melts, you can't refreeze it, but you know, all those things aside, like it is one of those products where, people rarely come in because they're grumpy and you know, they are generally very kind and, and they're there because they want to be cheered up <laughs> or because they want to like either extend their happy day or they want to turn their day around. Um, and it's a really privileged spot to be, to be able to, you know, be selling joy. <laughs>
1: mm-hmm. I mean, it, it, it just sounds like it would be fun every day. And some businesses, you know, can be grim places, but Mm -hmm. (laughs) maybe it helps to start out uh, producing a product that not only puts a smile on people's faces, but you get to see the smiles.
0: Yes, for sure. I'm always reminded, like if I'm having a particularly bad day, when I, you know, go to the shop and I serve some ice cream, I'm always reminded of like how... Like where the value that we bring is, and and it's really satisfying to be continually in touch with you know the front line side of the business.
1: We don't normally ask you know precise questions about sales and everything, but just how are sales going? Are we seeing like uh, consistent growth from year to year? Mm-hmm. It's going really well. Or are you? Uh, is 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 it is it getting harder or easier?
0: I would say harder. Um, I think that when we first started, you know, you have, you usually, if you have a good product, you'll see, you know, very good growth. Um, And we were growing very consistently year after year. And then, you know, the pandemic happened and Mm -hmm.
1: I was going to ask about that.
0: (laughs) And we're the type of business, you know, with that design thinking in mind, we, we test, we iterate a lot and we turn those tests and iterations into processes and manuals and procedures that, you know we that helps us become more efficient and more effective um it holds a certain bottom line for us and you know when the pandemic hit we had to throw all that work out the window all that investment into you know our processes our standards um and we had to change a lot of things and i remember thinking at the beginning how it really felt like i was starting a new business it was wow. it just felt completely different and so we're trust. i think we're over the pandemic years trying to gain that momentum again and I think this year uh we started to notice a slowdown uh in late summer of last year and that's pretty much been consistent I don't think that it's a decline that I need to be very concerned about in the sense that it's a year over year decline I think that um that's natural I think with the recession like that people are talking about for people to be, you know, be a little bit more conscious about how they're spending. Um, and so that mm-hmm. it just requires us to think about how we're going to be adjusting to that. And I think every business small and big right now is thinking about whether they need to make any adjustments around, you know, like the rece- incoming recession um, or, you know, their unfortunately some businesses that are closing which does create some opportunities for investment for certain businesses that are doing well so lots Mm -hmm. of big decisions i would say
1: right what kind of things do you do to try and you know make up for that can you can you grow the business by coming up with more flavors Mm. or do you need more more outlets or
0: i don't know if we have figured out exactly what we're going to do yet like we're we're throwing a lot of ideas to the wall and seeing where we think we will see a lot of benefit. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, we are coming up with new products, but I think the th- something we have to be more conscious of is when we do more product development, it actually creates more waste um, or resources that we are not able to recoup faster, if that makes sense. So, you know, every every new product requires a certain amount of investment and it takes a lot of time for that investment to come back um so it it could be that you know we might not be investing into creating new flavors but it could be that we're investing into making our process more f- efficient our production process more efficient right now everything that we make is is still very handmade and very labor intensive but it requires a lot of creative thinking to maintain that you know that labor intensive aspect while still making things you know take make, make them things go faster. So, you know, little changes like, um, like how we set up our little assembly line could make things go faster. Uh, how we arrange things in the freezer could make things more intuitive and save, you know, little bits of time here and there. And I think, unfortunately, that's a lot of creative energy that the customer doesn't get to see. Um, but it is still deeply satisfying, I think for the team, to be able to exert creative energy in a way that's more related to process to make their lives easier there's to see that there's still investment being done but um being more intentional with choosing projects that we could um, see return much more uh, much sooner uh, than for product development that can take a long time to costs. because you, you never know how long it takes to to do that product development before you get a product that's sellable right. or that you're right. happy with. Um, so it's choosing projects, I think, uh, where I don't think we'll ever stop as a young business. It's, we don't, it'll be a long time coming before we can really comfortably say we'll stop invest, reinvesting into the business. Um, but yeah, some things right. like that.
1: The curse of small business, <laughs> but also the, 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 the beauty of it is that you can um, innovate on every axis you have mm-hmm. so that it, you can innovate in process uh, you can innovate in product, you can innovate in price, you can do so many things and, and it must be fun to play around. I got to ask you though, I've been dying to ask about this, Mushu ice cream truffles. Are ice cream truffles as good as they sound?
0: <laughs> yes. So that's actually the product that we very first started with very at the very beginning. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. Um, and the reason is, again, it comes from the idea or comes from me thinking about like, customer experience and our process of how we're going to bring all this product to the, um, the farmer's market. And, um, so I think one of the biggest challenges that we first had when we were thinking about how we're bringing ice cream to the farmer's market was that you would need, you know, a freezer, um, a freezer is at negative 20 degrees. Ice cream should, well, negative 25. And then when you serve ice cream, it's ideal around negative 18, negative 15 Um, and so I was trying to figure out how can I not have to buy a super expensive ice cream freezer just yet, um, use a a much less expensive home freezer, um, Mm. which you have less control over temperature, uh, but then also be able to serve scoopable ice cream or like soft ice cream or edible ice cream at the moment that your customer makes the purchase. Um, and I think the smaller portions was a really good way to do that, uh, what because it's, it would kind of temper much faster uh, just because of you know, the, the size of it. So the ice cream truffles was kind of a way for me to meet that expectation for the customer while you know, making, reducing investment, like asset investment. It takes a lot more time because right. I have to pre-scoop everything and then dip everything in chocolate. Um, but it was also it's in itself like a really interesting product, especially for flavors that were uh, hard to commit to. Because, you know, like, they're they're a little out there. And so people were thinking about it. It's like, it's just two bites. You know, if you want to try something different, um, committing to two bites is not so bad uh, versus committing to a whole big scoop or um, like a whole pint of something. So it was kind of definitely think how those came to be was definitely thinking from the customer experience first. And then us as staff, like I consider myself as staff, our experience of of being able to bring, how are we going to do that service? How are we going to execute in the most, um, consistent way possible was by, by bringing in small portions. And then, you know, I feel like that philosophy kind of goes, you know, permeates everywhere through the business as we grow as well.
1: Is there one flavor that has taken off more than ever, any other, and maybe even it surprised you how popular it became?
0: Um, our our best selling flavor is definitely Hong Kong milk tea. So, like, my favorite. Um, yeah. And at the beginning, I had to, it was hard to explain because it's like us, uh, so it's just like tea and milk. And I was like, yeah, but better. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, it's just stronger and it's better. Um, and I think we, it was helped by the popularization of bubble tea in, in Ottawa. It kind of, at a similar time, bubble tea was becoming really expensive. Now, bubble tea, um, the, the strength of the tea is not as strong as what a Hong Kong milk tea is, um, but it really helped in how to explain that because there was a, a common frame of reference that we could use or, or something that people would know. Um, so that, that was really fun. And I, I love that something that's so close to you know, my heart and my heritage has become you know, the most popular flavor at, for the business. Um, and I guess I, I'm a little surprised by that. Because, but I also feel like I, I don't offer a vanilla. So <laughs> so maybe I'm like forcing people's hand on, on that one a little bit.
1: That's, that's very cool. Tell me about, uh, do you have any plans to increase distribution? Is there any chance that people living outside of Ottawa will be able to sample any of your flavors soon?
0: Mm-hmm. So I, that's a very common question. Um, I figured it. In Ontario, actually, we're we're not allowed to wholesale dairy product unless you have a dairy plant license, and it's the dairy plant license. You know, the requirements are quite cost prohibitive to build that type of infrastructure for a small business like ours. So, I would say that in terms of dairy product, it it seems as though because of regulation, um, it's gonna it's gonna stay quite local within local communities. Um, Not something that I'm super upset about. I would say, like I, I. a huge passion of mine around the ice cream is the idea of being rooted in, you know, the place that you get your ingredients from. Um, But we have been working very hard on our vegan ice creams, thinking about how if, you know, kind of leaving ourselves a, a little opening for if we decide we want to expand into the wholesale sphere, that, you know, it would have to be through our vegan product. And we've invested a lot of time and energy into developing a product that is really good. And I'm very proud of it. And we get a lot of great feedback about how creamy it is and how it melts similar to our dairy ice cream. So, so that's one way. Um, and, and we've also been uh, really interested in doing events recently, um, doing pop-ups and you know catering and all that stuff. So that might be one avenue where we could be bringing our ice cream to somewhere else.
1: Ah, okay. We'll keep an eye out for that. Um, Ontario in particular has a number of pretty strong, like regional and independent ice creameries. Any chance of working with them to, uh, take advantage of any slack production time <laughs> they might have to to, 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 have them produce your ice cream so you don't have to build your own plant too soon?
0: Yeah. I'm, I don't know. I haven't really thought about, you know, the, what the industry in the industry we call co-packing for, um for ice cream it's our process is so atypical that i'm not sure that it would fit well into a regular kind of co-packing situation so I, I just remember
1: being struck one of the the, the the most feel-good business stories i ever heard was when uh, chapman's ice cream which is a a, a prominent mm-hmm. uh brand in, in markdale sort of in the the center west of the province when they had a big fire that put them almost out of business um a bunch of other uh creameries around the around the province stepped up and said hey you can produce your stuff here well you know let us step in and help you and and that was such a Such a heartwarming thing to see that you know competitors are stepping in to help, Mm -hmm. and it just makes me think that maybe there's some goodwill in this industry, and there's (laughs) there's probably some slack production time (laughs) they had available.
0: I would say that like I don't think our industry is particularly like competitive. Like I've had wonderful conversations with other ice cream stores, uh, other business owners like myself, and you know we share our challenges. yeah, I, I think it's really nice that we, I think there is a sense of community. I, I mean, I'm personally um, very, feel very lucky to know a, a lot of small business owners. And I think that's one of the greatest rewards of owning your small business is that, like, you realize how unique your struggles are. And, but there's always, you know, somebody there that that you can share with and, and that can you know, give you good advice or kind of give you some motivation to kind of overcome those challenges. And, and, and and within the ice cream industry, for sure, like, as well, like, I think that there's a lot of leaning on each other as well. Like, I know that, um, actually, our freezer just, you know, our freezer just failed this weekend. And, you know, we've, we've lost lost a lot of our product and a, a few other restaurants had reached out and said, like, hey, like, if you need room to store anything like let us know like luckily our freezers back up and running and we didn't really need that but it was nice and then we also got some messages from other ice cream stores that were like not in ottawa that just said like that really sucks and that, like, that feels really good <laughs> you know just to just to hear from somebody else that you know has a, has an ice cream probably know how important that that freezer is it's it's kind of like the heart of your, your business and uh just to have someone express that like that that would be really devastating.
1: Um, right. Well, they're both expressions of community. Yeah, exactly. And and that's uh, such a good thing to have. And uh, you know, it's good to know it's out there. Mm-hmm. Let me just talk. Uh, let, let's talk quickly about the fact that you know you're in business not just to make money, but to you know to, to do some good outside of your your product. So you're a living wage certified company. Can you tell us what that is and what led to your wanting to, to get that designation
0: yeah so our uh, so living wage uh, is calculated by the Ontario living wage network I'm sure there's ones for other provinces as well um, so they basically look at the cost of living in different areas or different cities and then decide and, and kind of like do the the work of figuring out how much you would have to pay your employees for them to be able to you know afford their rent prop- uh, comfortably to have um, you know uh groceries and just a, you know a little bit of leisure money as well to spend on like hey I want to go to the movies you know or um i want to do a little road trip to a town you know if, you know a couple hours of over nothing extravagant but just you know a life that um is comfortable and worth living or like that right. yeah. worth living is probably not the best w- way to describe it but you know leisure is i think I, is I, essential I as well it
1: very well yeah, yeah wanting to make sure that that anyone, especially people who work for you and are important mm-hmm. to you, that, that 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 they can live a decent life.
0: and I, and I've known for a long time that um minimum wage is not enough. Like i am I myself am paid at the lowest, like currently because I'm still growing the business. I, I am still being paid at, you know, the same as our lowest paid employee. Um and so I personally have firsthand experience of how hard it is to kind of budget around you know that that pay. I had been in the food industry for a long time before I started Mushu, and I had left because while I was really, I I found a lot of job job satisfaction, I didn't see myself being able to have a family or um, have savings or do a lot of the things that I I wanted to at those wages. And it's not just wages, it's, you know, the lack of um, benefits, you know god forbid Mm -hmm. i i get sick what happens then or um the lack of uh consistent hours was a problem as well um like in the food industry it's very common for restaurants or shops to cut you like not just give you a week's notice but if you show up to work that day and it's slower than expected you know they'll cut your hours and they say you know what it's not busy enough like i'm sending you home now um And those are really common. Um, And so it's impossible to budget. And and I think like we put a lot of responsibility on people who are low income to be responsible with their money, but it's impossible when you, when you don't know how much you're going to be making every single week, like how do you budget for that? Um, And so at the very, before we can expect people to, you know, do the, what conventional wisdom calls the responsible thing of budgeting and keeping within their means, there has to be a baseline of, Making sure that they are starting with something that they can work with, something that they can.
1: budget. This is more of that damn empathy stuff they taught you in school.
0: <laughs> I don't know if I was. Maybe I, I'm sure I I was born with some level of empathy. <laughs> and uh, I mean,
1: I, I just haven't talked to very many uh, uh, many business owners who you know see the the, the difficulties that their employees face so clearly, mm-hmm. and you know, adopt it as as a problem that they have some responsibility to solve. So it's very refreshing to <laughs> you talk like about.
0: Thank you. I think it's one of those things where like, I've been there before, like I, I and I think it's You're worse now. now
1: it's <laughs> yes,
0: true. Um, but you know, like I've been there before and I was work, I didn't come from, you know, a family that had, you know, a lot of money. And so in order for me to go through university, I had to work during university and balancing those hours was, was really hard. And I was, I think I was really lucky that my, my parents taught me, um, some understanding of like fiscal responsibility of like understanding how credit cards work and how, how to save and, and how interest works. And then I was also very lucky that, um, my best friend in university, her mom, kind of sat me down and taught me how to do my taxes. And just, you know, not everybody has ends up, you know, serendipitously having people in their lives that would teach them about finances. But, and so it was like really interesting to see like all the instruments and all the tools that are available to manage your finances, but then also be in a situation where you have no finances to manage. If that makes sense. Like, it's like, cool. I have, you know, after rent and food, I have $50. Like, what do I, what am I supposed to manage with that? Um, So I, yeah, I definitely have a lot of empathy. And I think about how I was working for a minute when I was working for minimum wage, it, you know, it was $12 an hour and rent was only, my rent was only 900 a month. And then now comparatively where um, minimum wage is 1550 and rent is more than doubled. So that doesn't, you know, that doesn't make sense anymore. Like I realized how much I had to struggle when I was a student working in food and coming out coming out of that and and comparing those, the income versus expenses, it it still doesn't make sense. It it makes less sense. So I really.
1: So to become a living wage company, what did, what what did you have to to change up?
0: Um, We had to to raise our prices really like our, our process is already quite labor intensive. Um, We, you know, most.
1: Sorry, before we get to to the the supply side, um, what, what, what did, what did you have to do for your employees? What commitments? What new commitments did you have to make or or adjustments?
0: Yeah, so we already had um, we already had imp- like implemented things like we don't cut staff. Uh, we have um, up like lower and upper bounds of like guaranteed hours that were quite like narrow comparatively to the rest of the industry, and then we also had benefits already in place for our year-round staff. So that next big jump was jumping to a living wage we were paying above minimum wage before but you know a living wage is right now 1960 an hour and then uh, our minimum wage is 1550 so that like a $4 jump is quite huge um, that's like more than 20% i believe so 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 i think the the thing that we did when we we transitioned to living wage transition to living wage was just that wage bump because we still we had those other things in place already um,
1: Right. Yeah, and and did you uh, did you have a, a a profit goal that you wanted to stay consistent that you increased prices to meet, or was it just a matter of hey we we have to raise prices?
0: Yeah, <laughs> there's
1: um, no future without it.
0: Exactly, like it really is. Looking at how much we're raising our how much we're raising our. Um, wages how much ingredients and supplies and everything has raised and then taking that percentage and applying that to prices really and, and then you know seeing how labor intensive our process is and you know certain things will end up costing more than other things because it relies on more labor um and i th- but it, it's like one of those things that you know everything is export getting more expensive and if we chose to the only thing that wouldn't go up was wages and and it seemed like. A no-brainer because you know if our ingredients are going up in astounding rates we know that grocery is going up at astounding rates as well Um, and so that's just another input cost that we have to consider and i think a lot of times wages are suppressed because it's the one it's really the one expense that small business owners have any control over we don't use and we don't go through enough volume of any ingredients to be able to negotiate lower prices you know, mm-hmm. commercial landlords are not notoriously known for <laughs> being the <laughs> kindest, I would say, or the most understanding um, about...
1: We don't have a lot of tools.
0: Exactly. And so the only thing, the only tool we can adjust is wages. And, and that just feels, you realize how unfair that feels because, you know, we're all in the same boat. You know, like in, in the business world, small businesses are, are the most vulnerable. And then, you know, the human society level, you know, our low income workers are the most vulnerable. And so it's, we're just two vulnerable entities being kind of put right. at odds with each other. And and I think this was for me a moment of saying like, you know what, this is solidarity and, and um, we want to build a business that can raise the standard of living for conventionally low, a low income job.
1: And what was the reaction from customers as prices rose? I mean, we see it everywhere, but hey, what about in, in our milk tea ice cream? <laughs>
0: yeah, I think that this is where communication is really important. And the the amount of investment in terms of goodwill and and transparency that we've put in, the work to do in our community really pays off is when we have to make a really difficult decision Um, there's a base level of trust that we're doing it because it's necessary. Um, And I think like that's where that worth is in terms of it's, it's not easy, I think to communicate consistently and transparently to your customers or your followers when it's not necessary. Like it's just, you know, we're always telling our story and we're always being vocal about what's going on with us. Um, But when you do have to make a, big decision that impacts them that's when that transparency pays off um and so like continuing that relationship even before kind of the crisis moment um it it just proves that that's really important i think we didn't we we did get some negative feedback um because I, i of course like you it's hard it it sucks to be outpriced um and it's a it's a it's a response that i don't take personally like I think it's easy to take personally because we're just trying to do a big thing, but, you know, you have to put your sh- yourself in the shoes of people who were, once was able to, you know, have, find a little joy in this ice cream and now are, are priced out of it. Um, one of the things that we did to to kind of ease that was to introduce a suspended scoop program, where if there were customers that were wanted to support our living wages uh, and, and understood that it, You know, the food prices have been subsidized by low wages for a long time that, you know, and they were willing to pay a little bit extra that they could pay extra to buy somebody else an ice cream and so that we could keep our community together.
1: And that mean I could come in and say, hey, do you have any suspended scoops today that you can give me one free? Yeah.
0: Yeah. And we don't ask questions. So it's meant to be very low barrier. Um, And yeah.
1: Wow. That's very powerful. What kind of reaction do you get? Are, are there people who are generous enough to do that?
0: They're very on board with it. I think a lot of people have, you know, had mo- so many people have had like seasons in their life where they weren't able to just afford a little bit of something um, or, you know, they were a student and they had to be very tight with their finances or, I mean, not a lot of people have experienced houselessness, but they've definitely experienced kind of come across it and seen it. And we have uh, customers like that that come in for sus- suspended scoops. I think it's like one way to reach out to your community um, amongst many that that feels good. Um, people have been really supportive, I would say. And whenever we run really low, uh, you have communicated that to the community and they've really shown up for that. And, and I think with food bank's, having very limited hours and um, sometimes having high, like high requirements or very formal requirements. It's not as easy to just get a little boost of help. And I think that's what this program, that's the gap that this program fills in is that, you know, we're open late, you know, if you just need to come in and grab a treat, you know, at nine o'clock at night, you can do that. Um, And if-
1: And it's probably hard to get a vegan chocolate cone at the food
0: bank. (laughs) Exactly.
1: Yeah, well, that's amazing. I mean, what 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 I'm hearing is that your experience is that when you're a part of the community, the the community will make time for you, will listen to you, will will trust you.
0: Absolutely, and I think it's
1: it's a beautiful thing. Yeah,
0: and I think, but I think the work behind that is to have been putting in that work as soon as you can
1: to do it authentically and make part of the brand. Yeah. Yeah. Design thinking. (laughs) All right. Well, thanks so much. This is an incredible story. Any, any big things planned for the summer season this year?
0: Uh, No, I think we're just looking forward to see what, what the summer is going to bring. Obviously like the, you know, the pandemic isn't quite over, but there are certain things that have changed a lot since, you know, those early shutdown days. And we're curious to see how that's going to impact just main streets and, and sales and customer sentiments, all of that in general. I I feel like it's an open book right now. Like I have, I feel like even with the whole living wage conversations about like, I wish I could have projected sales and done very accurate measurements, but you know, with two years of pandemic conditions proceeding, it's like, it's, it was really hard to make any prediction. So I'm keeping myself open to whatever is going to happen this summer and we'll see how it goes.
1: <laughs> well, I guess you can't say this. So I will, the fact that you survived uh pandemic when so many other restaurants and, 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 and places like that have, have failed, they couldn't keep it going. Um, it sounds like it puts you in a great position to 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 to, to thrive and grow over the next couple of years so I, I hope that's the way it'll be
0: Thank you that means a lot
1: any final words of wisdom for for our for the entrepreneurs listening based on your experience uh with mushu ice cream hmm.
0: I think that um i i mean i i don't I don't want to open up a whole other Door, but I would say, like something that's I've been very focused on recently is is thinking about how um, business success is really dependent on you know community success. And I would encourage like small businesses to you know when they're thinking about their business to also consider you know the needs of their community and and the people around them, you know their staff, um, be attentive to that just beyond like what they need from your business. It's, you know, what the community is in need of right now.
1: Let's open that <laughs> door just a tiny bit. Can you give an example, of just something that maybe you've seen another business do, um, that you think, yeah, that's, it's so obvious that you help the community. They'll support you. Um, just one more. Um,
0: yeah, I think, like one of the businesses I really look up to here in Ottawa, uh, bred by us, um, Jess, who is one of the owners there, uh, she's very vocal about um, labor rights, and she's very much inspired me to be more vocal as well. Um, and, you know, the perspective that we take is that it's not just good for the community, and it's also good for businesses as well. And And, like, to really interweave that story of, well, not just the story, the truth that, you know, this small business success really comes from community success. Um, we really, a lot of times we use small businesses as an indicator of, you know, how strong a community is or how livable a space is, but that that's just a indicator. It's, it's reflective of, you know, whether people in the community have um, expendable income or whether they have access to transit or whether they have good wages or good working conditions and all of that and all of those things. And um, I think because of the pandemic and because of the incoming recession, we're all thinking about like, where, where's my business going? What is the health of my business? And whenever I think about those things and, and I think whenever I talk to Jess, so much of that is connected to the health of the community. And and I've become much more mindful of how I can advocate for, you know, even policy um, provincially or municipally, about like that could help our communities be stronger. And thus, you know, it will eventually translate to a stronger business for myself.
1: Yeah, I think that's exactly right. Um, not to push this too far, but there's a whole new um, philosophy in bigger businesses revolving around license to operate. And it's just this sense that businesses have to create something for society other than, you know, ma- monitoring their own bottom line in order to have. The right to operate, and you know, obviously there are people there who are mm-hmm. uh, who are terrified by that idea. But there are so many businesses that are big businesses that are big publicly traded companies, global companies that are getting their heads around that and acknowledging that they have that um, responsibility. And I think that's a, a very positive thing. Mm-hmm. And it all starts at the community level. So it's so I'm not surprised that that you and other entrepreneurs in Ottawa are way ahead of the curve on this. <laughs>
0: yeah i'm glad i hope that if big businesses can catch on to that that's a lot less work for us
1: (laughs) (laughs) exactly we've been talking with liz mock the founder of mushu ice cream in ottawa and the creator of hong kong milk tea ice cream and uh, i look forward to dropping by and saying hi to you and sampling some of that next time i'm in ottawa
0: thanks so much